The king's words from Jeremiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This, I'm sorry, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. We continue this morning to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us through Scripture. I invite you to hear these familiar words from the parable of the Good Samaritan in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So this morning, I am here with you at Chestnut Level Presbyterian Church, but Reverend John Hartman is with my congregation in Elkins Park in the suburbs of Philadelphia. If you don't know where that is, go to Philadelphia and then walk across the street and you're in Elkins Park. We're that close. So we are the first kind of boundary uh, between Philadelphia and the suburbs. Many of my congregation will tell you they move to that area because car insurance is less because you don't have a Philadelphia zip code. So they still like going to the city, but they like being able to say, I don't live in the city. So we're right there in the suburbs, and John and Lisa are there this morning with my congregation, blessing them with God's word, engaging in praise and worship together. 
my daughter has a softball game this afternoon and was a little anxious about driving all the way out here and getting home in time for her three o'clock game. So she is probably there harassing John this morning as well. We are blessed to live in a manse right across the driveway from the congregation. So it's an easy commute, a little different than my trip this morning. But over the years, as my family first worshiped with you when we were on vacation in the area, and then John and I became friends, and we continued to worship here once or twice a year, John then entered into a program where he's trying to diversify the ministry skills and gifts he offers your congregation. So he's exploring what it is to be a ministry coach, and he told me he needed some guinea pigs. I am one of those guinea pigs. So for the last two to three years, we've been meeting for about an hour, each month, and John has been engaging in what's called ministry coaching with me. Now, ministry coaching is different than counseling or spiritual direction or meeting with a psychologist, is specifically talking about the ministry vocation, the call from Christ to serve a congregation and to serve and use your gifts in ordained ministry. So I basically bounce ideas off of John and say, based on your experience, he's older than me, Based on all this vast experience you have in wisdom, what can you share with me entering my 15th year of ordained ministry? So it's been a wonderful time to engage and to kind of bounce ideas back and forth and see where the Spirit is leading, to be in prayer and support for one another. And it's been a blessing to do this pulpit swap because then once a year, John actually gets to meet the butts in the pews at my church and say, oh, these are the people Cynthia has been just adoring and speaking of and never complaining about when we discuss all the ministry ups and downs of life. So I'm grateful for that. That exchange, that willingness to be a student is what discipleship is. It's the gift of being able to minister and teach and lead and share God's word, but also to receive God's word from others and often from unexpected places as we continue to grow in our faith. Scripture is used as a tool in that journey of maturing and discipleship. So as we turn to scripture today, my daughter told me, I better tell a joke because John tells jokes. I don't usually tell jokes, so I'm going to tell a bad joke. <laughs> so how many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is zero, because Presbyterians don't change. <laughs> so thank you for, for laughing and making me feel good. But yes, today is Reformation Sunday, a day on the calendar that we acknowledge that over 500 years ago, Martin Luther said there's some changes needed in the way we serve Christ through our congregational ministry. And he, as a priest, made a list of 95 things that he thought needed to be changed or reformed in the life of the church. But reformation is not a new idea in church. Martin Luther did not have this great idea in the first person in history to say maybe something needs to be altered or adjusted in the way we worship or engage in mission or do service or use our gifts. He, for some reason, though, spoke up at a time in history that was ready for change, ready to receive what he had to say, and with the aid of many other great leaders in the church, laity and priests alike, great theologians, speakers, people who were willing to take risk for their faith, along with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they made change. They created the Reformation. And the Presbyterian faith since then has kind of taken on its moniker that we are the church reformed, always reforming. Yet ironically, the kind of behind the scenes name that's given to Presbyterians is that we are the frozen chosen, that we don't change. We do it the way we've always done it because obviously we're doing it right. So why change something that's correct? Well, in that act of hubris, thinking that we're always right, that act of pride, 
it unfortunately tends to then exaggerate the edges that maybe need the reform or the change and ignores the things that are steady and that get us in the right place and that are foundational. If something is working well, we don't give it much attention. If you're doing maintenance on a building, you tend to pay attention to the things that are broken or faded or rusty and kind of maybe ignore or get around later if you have time to the things that are working well. So for Martin Luther to speak up, he said, here's 95 things that need attention in the church. He didn't say I could solve all the problems. He never said I'm better than Jesus or no more than anyone else. He simply said, here's 95 things that need maintenance. Part also of our Presbyterian heritage is that we talk about there being these great ends of the church, and one of them is the maintenance of divine worship. We've put in our constitution of our denomination saying maintaining worship, in other words, painting the parts that fade, taking care of the parts that are rusty, polishing the things that need attention, changing the oil and things that need it, in order to ensure that our worship life, everything we do together, is divine. So we acknowledge there's a need to change, to reform, to adjust, but there's a difference in the way the church does that compared to the way the world does that. The world does that based on peer pressure, whims, innovation, novelty, things that are flashy, the things that has the best jingle or the best infomercial, gets all the attention, the money, the things that are glittery and maybe scandalous. And for the church to say, we're open to change, we're open to reform, we're open to adjustment in the leading of the Holy Spirit, but the foundation of who we are cannot change. The foundation of Jesus Christ as our Savior will never change or else we won't be the church anymore. And this was the fear that Martin Luther had, that the church in its humanness, in its brokenness, in its worldliness, had strayed so far from the foundations that Jesus taught in Scripture that who the church was 500 years ago, 1,500 years from the time of Christ, was so different that maybe Christ wouldn't even recognize it. It had strayed so far with good intentions and people's desire to please God, but with a worldly influence and the temptations that came with that, that led them to stray so far from that core. So often when we think about change, we think about leaving the past behind and doing something completely different. Change for the sake of reformation is quite different. Reformation doesn't ignore or forget where you came from. Reformation doesn't leave things behind and say those are old and useless and we don't need them anymore. Let's do something completely different. Reformation says, let's look at how we do something. Let's discern and let's get ourselves back to the basics. And with that foundation, then see, is any change or adjustment needed? But we have to go back to the core to make that analysis and that discernment. So when Jeremiah speaks to his congregation, that's what he says to them. He says, if you reform your ways and your actions, then God will bless you in this place. If you reform your ways and your actions. So he stood in front of that congregation as a priest and as a prophet and said to everyone gathered there in an act of worship, God is disappointed in you. You have sinned, and the sin you've committed is that you are worshiping things more than God. You've been distracted by the ways of this world, and it's pulled you so far away from your core, your center of who God is, 
that who you are, what you're saying and doing, looks foreign or peculiar. God doesn't recognize you anymore. You're not the family of God anymore. You're some sort of like long-lost relative down the street that maybe we think is the same last name. We'll figure it out sometime. No, you have to come back to this core, fundamental foundation of who you are. And Jeremiah says, if you do that, God will resume blessing you. And Jeremiah says, how do you do that? How do you reform your ways and actions? He says, take care of widows, take care of orphans, take care of those in need. In other words, respond to the needs of the world by showing mercy, love, and justice. A theme throughout the message of Jeremiah. This message from God through this prophet that if you humble yourself before God, and show actual care and mercy and openness to every person you encounter and meet their needs with the love of God, then God will also meet your needs with his love. And we like to think, well, of course. We know that. If you see someone in need, you take care of them. If you're aware of someone in distress, you gotta calm them down. If there's a call for food, you respond with food. A call for clothing, you respond with clothing. A call for money, you respond with money. We do that as followers of Christ, of course. Yeah, I think sometimes we exaggerate our response to make ourselves feel good. And there are times when we look away and we don't engage and we don't respond. And that was what Jeremiah was saying to his congregation. You pay lip service to mercy and justice. You pay lip service to good acts and humility and kindness. But most of the time, you're in it for yourselves. And you ignore the needs of the world. But you look pretty good when you show up for worship. When you're in this space with this congregation, you make it look good. You act and say the right things. But once you step out into the rest of your life, you become a hypocrite and you no longer live those values you claim when you're in this worship space. Now, unfortunately, that hadn't changed very much by the time Jesus entered the picture. So in the story of the Good Samaritan, we tend to focus on what that parable is, that we should care for someone, that we should show respect and interest in the needs of any human and give them dignity and worth no matter who they are. At the beginning of that parable, the legal expert, the person who knew God's law, had it memorized, was actually trying to trick Jesus. He wanted to one-up Jesus. He, in his own pride, said, here's Jesus, son of a carpenter. He's walking around as a prophet, a teacher, a rabbi. Who does he think he is? A priest, maybe? He's none of those things by our standards and by our training and by our heritage. So who does he think he is? And this expert in the law comes up and says, well, I'm an expert. Let me ask you a question. It seems harmless, but it's not. It's intended to make him fall into a trap. It's intended to make Jesus look foolish or even heretical. So he says, you know, basically, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now, you or I might be snarky and go, well, aren't you an expert in God's law? Open your book. Like, why don't you know the answer to your own question? But Jesus knows the intentions of this man's heart and takes the opportunity to offer up maybe the most well-known parable in all of Scripture, that people outside the church even know the story of the Good Samaritan. And he answers him and says, you know about loving God and loving your neighbor, and here's a story about how you can do that. Here's a story about who your neighbor is. Yet the question that was asked is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But the question that is answered is, who is my neighbor? 
So Jesus doesn't fall into the trap. Jesus offers a parable that speaks about neighborliness, the dignity of every human life, kind of crossing over these boundaries we've arbitrarily made between people of who's in and who's out, us and them, and saying any child of God deserves our mercy, our care, and healing and sympathy. But it leaves open-ended the question that's asked about what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus walks away without finishing the answer and leaves us to try to supply that answer. But we're left with this story of care and humility and answering the same justice question that Jeremiah proposed to his congregation. So how do you reform yourself? And how are you always reforming? By acting with mercy, by showing care to others, by involving yourselves in the lives of the needy, and being open to the Spirit's call and leading and nudge that you need to do something. So whether it's Jeremiah calling his congregation to reform and care for the widows and orphans and those in need, or is Jesus answering this question by saying, like the good Samaritan, who up until this point everyone would have called the bad Samaritan, but he's rebranded him as the good Samaritan, respond for someone who's in distress and need no matter who they are. Show the love of God to anyone, no matter who they are, and whether or not they can repay you for what you've done. So then the church says, well, then who are we? Who are we in this world, in this modern world, if we say we're reformed and always reforming? If we as Presbyterians have kind of taken that and enshrined it as our motto of who we are, what does that look like? And unfortunately, I think many of us think it means that we must constantly be changing. If you are constantly changing, it is exhausting. If you are constantly trying to do the next big thing, follow the next trend, do the next thing that the world will notice, you are never going to get there because you're always chasing after something that then changes the next day that you're chasing after and the next thing. And you're never going to achieve the satisfaction that you've gotten to your goal. So both God speaking through Jeremiah and Jesus speaking through his parable of the Good Samaritan don't say change, do something different, do something innovative, do something new. They say, look around at what already needs to be done and do it. Don't go searching, don't go reaching. Don't try to be trendy. Don't do something just because you'll take a photo and the news will cover what you did. Just look around in your own life. And if there's a need, respond to it with the grace and humility and love of God. And the thing is, that will seem different. That will feel countercultural. That will make a real difference or change in the person's life who you are interacting with. If someone is hungry and you feed them, you have changed them. If someone is hurting and you heal them, you have changed them. If they're naked and you clothe them, you have changed them. If someone is alone and you now befriend them, you have changed their life. You are doing change work. You are reforming but you're doing it in a way that is affirming to your identity as a follower of the one true God. You're doing it in a way that lives into the call to humility and care and sympathy and empathy that is found in scripture. Because the world is broken, because sin and temptation draw us away and say, I want the world to look at me and praise me for what I've done, we lose the ability to see the needs right in front of us. Martin Luther looked at the church and he said, I love the church. He didn't leave the church. He didn't say, get rid of the church. He didn't say, throw the baby out with the bathwater. He said, I love the church and I want to save it. And the way to save it 
to get back to the basics of who Jesus Christ has called us to be as his disciples. Now, not everyone liked what he had to say. He got in a lot of trouble. I'm not encouraging you to get in trouble. I'm encouraging you to be aware of the church, of your Christian brothers and sisters in the greater world, and how you can respond as a disciple of Jesus. Because in today's world, in the time of Martin Luther, in the time of that expert question Jesus, in the time of Jeremiah, to do something humble, local, yet transformative in someone's life is exactly what you're called to do, but it may not get a lot of attention. To this day, anyone on the street can tell you the story of the Good Samaritan, whether they go to church or not, but not one of us knows his name. He became famous for showing care and love and doing something unexpected, but his name has not made him a celebrity. His actions have. When we look at the church and question, what is the church today? How are we reformed and always reforming? The question I ask of myself as a pastor of my congregation, of Christians I encounter, is what are you doing every single day in the simple acts of life to show forth the love of Christ? Because that is transformative, that is change work, that makes a difference. And if you respond to loneliness, brokenness, heartache, hunger, any need that you're made aware of, in any way, even if the response is prayer and companionship rather than some sort of monetary or physical response, your response is changing the life of the individual you've encountered and you're reforming it, reforming it, taking it and forming it back into what God wants it to be. You're taking that beloved child of God who is broken and you're healing them. You're taking that beloved child of God who is lonely and you're including them. You're taking that beloved child of God who is hurting in some way and you're showing love. And as a result, the body of Christ is healthier and change has occurred, but it's brought you closer to your foundation of faith rather than farther away. So I encourage you on this Reformation Sunday, if you have the opportunity to discuss this with anyone outside of this worship service, and you may say, hey, what holiday is today? Most people won't know. But if you're able to this opportunity to say, it's Reformation Sunday, and they say, well, what's that? What's it all about? You say, it's about being like Jesus. It's about showing love and care, humility. It's about expressing the joy of life and the gift of salvation and opening the door of grace to anyone, anywhere, at any time, because it will change lives for the better. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, we are humbled that you have called us to transform one another's lives through your spirit. We are grateful that you ask us to change, to turn away from sin and back towards you. We appreciate the legacy we have in our faith family tree of reformation, of reforming us so we are more like Christ. Thank you for your word from scripture. Thank you for your spirit speaking. Allow us moving forward to better honor you as we live into our lives of discipleship. We give you thanks in the name of Christ. Amen.